Upper Room Discourse, where we dissect the meaning of Christian music and the history of Scripture. I'm Felipe Marin. And I'm Dakota Childress. What will we discuss this week? Keep listening to find out. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to the Upper Room Discourse. My name is Felipe Marin. I'm Dakota Childress. And uh, today we're joined with a special guest. I'm Cameron Brooks. I'm the college young adult pastor here at OVU. And he will be helping us out today with a special treat that we have. Yep. Uh, So many of you know we've been doing a series on justification, looking at the five solos. And this week, it's all about justification. Yep. Uh, We've been talking a lot about around justification, basically, but now we're going to actually look what justification itself is. Yep. And who better do that than one of the most famous people, Martin Luther. And we'll get to that here in a little while. Yeah. Uh, We're very excited. Uh, So many of you that don't know, uh, October 31st is kind of like the day attributed with the Reformation, at least the day we remember when we think about it. Right. So It's a good juxtaposition. uh Uh-huh. In other words, it's a good challenge or um what's the word i'm looking for contrast yeah to halloween mm-hmm. this is how we're going to be celebrating halloween yep I, mean, I don't know how you celebrate the reformation but yeah <laughs> so let's go ahead we're going to jump in so we're going to be looking at the doctrine of justification uh, so let me ask you guys what is justification Go ahead and start yeah. for us, Cameron. Yes, yeah, so I think initially uh, the first thing that comes to mind is being declared righteous. Um, and so uh, obviously we'll get to it more in a little bit, but how we're declared righteous I think is really important mm-hmm. when we think of uh, justification. So it's kind of taking more of the definition and then also applying it by saying not only being declared righteous, but how that's being done. Right. And I like a word that, Paul actually uses, or at least it's translated this way in Romans, uh, but freed, mm-hmm. and we're freed from sin. Uh, so, I mean, just think of it that way. I think, you know, you're freed from sin, from the bondage of sin, the death that comes along with it, and the consequences thereof. Mm. That's for sure. You know, and it's interesting you bring up Romans. I actually have a passage out of Romans that I selected. Uh, I mean, I guess it's not a surprise. We're going to be looking at no. Romans later on uh, today as well. Uh, but I pulled aside Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. Uh, just a small excerpt. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And I think that passage is right there. Like, that's it. Yeah, I think it encompasses everything together. And, I mean, quite a few sentences, like three verses, three, four verses. But everything is there packed together simply neatly. Kind of yeah. like this uh, picture on the board if you're on YouTube. <laughs> uh, we got a gift up here. So if you're on YouTube, look at the board, gift. Yeah, That's what grace is. This time it's color correct. It it's, is. It's red and green. That's right. The colors of Christmas. Can't really tell the red, but it's there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so with that, we're going to jump into our song review. Uh, so we're looking at a really old song today. 
About uh, 500 years old. Yeah, about 500 years old. A Mighty Fortress is Our God, uh, written by, obviously, Martin Luther. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, he's our main man. Yeah. Uh, this is probably one of his most well-known hymns that he's written. Uh, at least I would say in most Protestant Christianity. Because obviously, like a Lutheran, you know, they would know a lot more right. of the hymns. I would expect that as well. Yeah. Uh, so people believe that it was written between 1527 and 1529. Uh, and Martin Luther, he wrote the poem, the stanzas, and he wrote the melody as well. He did both of them. Right. Uh, but the earliest publication that we have existing today was published in 1531. I do believe there's a 1529 one out there, but there's no record of it that exists today. Yeah, I think I was doing a little bit of research about it, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the conclusion everybody came to, Yeah, like 1531-ish. Yeah. Uh, now, the original language, uh, again, obviously, is German. It's, it wasn't written in English, uh, but it has been translated to English multiple times. Uh, I think it's upward of like 70-some different translations of it. Wow, that's a lot. You would think, but it's also been 500 years. Yeah. Uh, The most well-known English translation, this is normally what we would see on a Sunday morning, and uh, probably what most Christians on a Sunday morning, what they would recognize and see. Uh, It was translated in 1853 by Frederick Hedge. Uh, So that'd be about 300-ish years after it was originally written. And uh, again, I, I like putting some trivia and stuff in there with it. Uh, I put down this hymn is known as the battle hymn of the Reformation. It kind of gives off that feeling too. It does. It it does feel like absolutely. I feel like it sends us into battle when we hear this song, and it's a reminder. Yeah, one of our uh, one of our friends kind of jokes around that we only sing this song around like the Fourth of July, and we actually <laughs> sang it uh, probably about a month ago now yeah. on one of our Sunday services, and I got a good chuckle out of that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. So uh, we're going to go ahead and look through uh, more detailed into the song. Uh, order of lyrics is just four verses, four stanzas. That's all it is. Uh, I label this song as a testimony, uh, but I also label this almost like a proclamation or a declaration, you know, because it really is. It's like this sends us into battle or this is what we're saying as we're going into battle. Uh, and then for audience, uh, I would say the main audience for this song is Christians. Uh, so other Christians, like a Christian would sing this to another Christian. Uh, but also just the nature of the lyrics and how it's written. I think the world is another audience. You know, because again, I mean, the song is, there's a lot of gospel in there. All right, so musicality. Uh, you guys know the drill. We're going to look at singability. We're going to look at melody. Uh, essentially, is this song a bop? Or a flop. Or a flop. Uh, now, this song is not a bop. You know, I know a lot of the songs we've had recently have been bops. You know, this one's not really much of a bop. You're not, like, I don't really feel like dancing when I hear this song. Yeah, I agree with that. It's more like a middle-of-the-road kind of thing. Yeah. So, original key, uh, where really what we mostly see is the key of D is usually what it's written in. Uh, oftentimes you'll see it brought down a step to C, uh, which I think just makes it a little bit easier for people to sing. It's not quite as high. Yeah. I mean, I don't know anything about Luther besides like some of his life. It'd be interesting to like see how he could sing if he could sing in like D. 
<laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if he wrote it that way, though. Yeah. You know. I mean, that's that's how it was basically written. It's very, like, it's very, very close to the original. Obviously, it's been changed, you know. Right. The melodies changed slightly from the original. But I think you just kind of expect that after so many years. You know, and also they wrote music differently in the 1500s than they do today. Like, there's a drastic difference in how they write music. Uh, it's a very simple melody. I think anybody that's heard this song will realize that, you know, it's not very complicated in terms of melody. You know, it's very pretty, but very simple. Yeah, I think, like, that speaks to as well, like, one of the things that's pretty well known about this song is that through the Reformation, you would have seen people interacting with this song, especially, like, let's just say in the middle of the street, mm-hmm. uh, singing it with one another. Uh, a lot of, like, common folk, as we would know, them as uh, would be singing this. And so I think that goes really well mm-hmm. with that. Uh, just the, the truth of the fact that it's really easy mm-hmm. um, kind of helps make it more of an an applicable song, but also a singable song, like yes. in multiple contexts. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that 100%. Yeah, and I think that speaks a lot to its longevity as well. You know, the more people who are able to sing it, it you know, it kind of survives. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what we see with popular songs anyways. Yeah. You know, for sure. I did write down what it lacks in complex melody. Uh, it does make up with rhythm and syllabic structure. So uh, it has a very complicated meter. So it's a eight seven eight seven six 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 seven meter. Which I know that was a lot of numbers. Uh, and we're kind of going to break that down a little bit uh, when we get to kind of the flow of the lyrics because a lot of that syllabic or syllabic is, I think it's the proper way of saying the word, uh, but a lot of that structure comes from the way the lyrics are written, more so than the melody itself. I do. There's a lot of stuff I like in the music. There's a really cool call and response that you hear in this melody, and that's why it's impaired. You know, eight seven eight seven six 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 six, and then seven. You know, because there's that call and response in the melody. You know, it's, you start high. You know, a mighty fortress is our God. Then we have our response, a bulwark never failing. I'm not that good of a singer, but you kind of see, you see what I mean. There's that call and there's that response. I thought you did pretty well. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but you see that all throughout, and uh, it kind of spreads out a little bit when we get to the six lines. Uh, it's almost like, a, as opposed to a single call response, it's almost like an extended call into an extended response. Uh, but every single one of these, they end on D. You know, they often will start on D, they'll end on D. Which I, I just think it's a really cool kind of just structure of it. Yeah, I was going to say, um, you kind of just come back to where you are mm. um, and singing it mm-hmm. instead of being all over the place, kind of like uh, what we would do last week. This is Amazing Grace. Yeah. Which I'm not saying like the song's all over the place, but it's a lot of... There's a lot of changing in the changing pitches. in pitch, yeah. and a lot of these pitches kind of flow into each other. Right, you know, you have that very beautiful kind of I don't know what to call it, the musical term for it, but you know what I'm talking about. You know, we're not jumping back and forth. It's yeah. not disjunctive. It's quite the opposite of that. You know, I wonder like if it's kind of related with the directiveness of kind of the Reformation, but also mm-hmm. like the point of the song, like you know, would have been Martin Luther especially would have been want to be more emphatic, mm-hmm. would have been more of like 
no discrepancy, mm-hmm. uh, very much of like want to be clearly understood. And so it's almost like that's kind of how I read this song. It's almost like a it's direct, definitive, yeah. and kind of consistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as long, you know, if there's one thing I know about Martin Luther, it's as long-winded as he is, mm-hmm. I could see that being the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And very, I say very to the point, but I don't know how you can be to the point and long-winded at the same time. <laughs> But I yeah. guess it can work. Uh, I do label it as a four out of five on musicality, uh, but a big portion of that comes from the complexities of the rhythm. Right. I think right. somebody that doesn't excel in rhythm would struggle with that a lot. Yeah, for sure. So we're going to go into probably the strongest point of the song, uh, but the flow and the grammar, the poeticness of it. Uh, I, I wrote down that we scale this on basically one to Shakespeare. I'd say this song is very Shakespeare. I'd agree. Very beautifully written. Shakespeare probably took notes from Martin Luther. Actually, they're two different time periods. So, yeah, and I think completely like, different. <laughs> like the first time I ever heard, like when I heard this song for the first time, I think even now, even since then, I fuck. Like I almost have to keep repeating the lyrics mm-hmm. to try to like really hone in on like, man, what is that actually saying there? Instead of yeah. the simplicity of being kind of you know making it easy, it's like, man, mm-hmm. like let me read that again. Let me hear that again. Yeah, it, right. it takes a lot of work to understand. Yeah, that's Absolutely. how I feel about reading any poem. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, there's a deepness here that I think a lot of a lot of modern songs just don't have mm. in yeah. lyrics and, like, theology. That's true. So that plays a big part, in my opinion, in the way the song is written out. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of this uh, flow is going to come off of, obviously, Frederick Hedges' translation, because we're not looking at the original German. I don't speak German. I don't think any of y'all speak German. No. <laughs> uh, but that meter that was in the music, it applies to the structure of the stanzas. It's how the syllables are done in the words. Uh, I put that it's, the stanzas are structured in kind of like a 4-4-1 four, four, pattern. So obviously you have your first four, which is your 8-7-8-7 eight, seven, eight, seven line. Then you have the next four, which is the six lines. And then you have that one seven line right at the end. Uh, which, by the way, all the seven lines are the exact same melody. Just the words are different. Uh, I put that there's a really cool rhyming structure. So obviously the first section is in an A-B-A-B structure, and then the second part is in an A-A-B-B structure, which again, it falls into that call and response. You know, I feel like rhyming does a really cool way of giving you that call and response feeling. And uh, I put that the final line, this is talking about flow. I feel like that final line really brings the stanza to a close and almost gives like a main idea for the stanza. You know, it kind of almost puts like a bow on it is how I feel like when I read it. Right. I'm just looking at it, uh, the lyrics here. I like the, you know, God is portrayed first, Mm -hmm. uh, at least in the first stanza, first verse, whatever you want to call it. Um, You know, mighty fortress is our God and then our ancient foe. Mm -hmm. And then he just kind of makes the general statement on earth is not his equal. Yep. And I, Honestly, that could go both ways. You know, um, there's no earthly man who is equal in power to Satan, and mm-hmm. there's no earthly man who is equal in power to God either. That's true. Uh, I would say that line specific. Well, I guess we'll talk about it actually. We'll get there. I won't, I won't spoil it. I'm yet. skipping ahead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I put five out of five. I think that's really fair on the poeticness of it. Again, I think it's really beautifully written. Uh, yes, it's hard to understand, but it, it is written very beautifully. Yeah, it's just one of those things where you you should take time to read it. 
and time to look at it and understand what's going on here. Yes. And that's where that beauty comes from. Mm-hmm. It's not just, you know, seeing it, but focusing, as Cameron was saying, on yeah. the lyrics and what they mean. Yeah. I think that's one of the things we've done as churches that we've missed is really providing people with an explanation or a background mm-hmm. that kind of helps understand uh, really where this is coming from and also, like, its place within worship, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, just I think it's helpful to at least know kind of the intricacies that we see here. Yeah, and uh, that kind of that idea that kind of flows into uh, where I feel it lacks on evocation with the vibe check and feelings produced, you know, because, uh, well, I guess we'll just jump straight into it. Uh, I was going to start with the good, but I guess we'll start with the negative (laughs) and we'll end with the good. Uh, The negative with the song is that the English is old and hard to comprehend. I think the average person or the average Christian probably is not going to understand parts of this hymn unless they study it unless they sit down, read it, and study it. Like, if they just show up on a Sunday morning and sing this song, and it's their first time, I don't know if they'll fully really understand what it's saying. Yeah, there's... Sorry, there's definitely a lot of words in here that we just don't use anymore, and... A bulwark? <laughs> yeah, that's one of them. <laughs> yeah. um, like, Flood of Mortal Ills. Yep, that's another one I wrote down. Um, confide. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Sabaoth is... Lord Sabaoth his name. Oh, it's Sabbath. Sabbath? It's spelled that way, but it's, it is spelled it's that old way. English. Yeah. I mean, that's probably how they would have said it. Um, trying to find... Grim. Yeah. yeah. That's another one, Uh We still kind of use doom, but abideth is another one. Yeah, it's just all throughout, which, again, it's just the nature of when it was written. This was right. the 1800s when this was translated. Right. So that's why. Uh, I wrote down that a less mature Christian or a less mature person could probably get bored from this song. Uh, and even a more mature Christian could possibly even get frustrated if they don't know what they're saying, you right. know, which again, I mean, obviously this answer to that is just study it. If you study it, you'll fully understand and you'll get it and it'll be fine. But I'm talking about initial feelings going in. My thoughts are, what about someone who English is their second language hmm. and they hear this song, you know, that's going to probably be a struggle for them pretty yeah. hard. Uh, and for me, that's the negatives on feelings you get from this song. Not a big negative, but just a negative that's there. Yeah, a lot of, and since it is so old, it's just a lot of barriers mm-hmm. between the time period and mm-hmm. who's writing and translating, and then us as modern believers, modern listeners, readers, yeah. whatever. Uh, now, there is a lot of good, way more good. Uh, I think the biggest feeling you get out of this is boldness. I think it's a very inspiring hymn, and I understand why it's called a battle hymn. If you listen to it and look at the words, you'll understand that. You know, I wrote down, this song makes me want to go out into battle. But it also reminds us that this battle is God's battle, that God is the victor in it. You know, he is a mighty fortress. If it was on our strength, we would lose. Jesus, God, he is the victor. Yeah, and that's literally what he says in mm-hmm. uh, the second stanza. Yeah. Our striving would be losing. Yeah. And then he says in the next line, we're not the right man on our side, Mm -hmm. the man of God's own choosing. Yep. So I put four out of five on evocation. I think there's more good than bad, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Very scriptural as well. Yeah. Uh, Which is a great segue as we look at the lyrics and basically how scriptural are the lyrics. Uh, So I want to bring your attention to Psalm 46. 
you know, that's kind of like a big inspiration of this hymn. Uh, I wrote down verse one because I think that's the strongest connection we see. Uh, not obviously not the whole thing, but Psalm 46, one says, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. And uh, honestly, I would recommend reading the entirety of the Psalm because I think that'll help a lot in helping to understand this hymn. Uh, I also wrote that there is more application from scripture and truth from scripture than actual scripture itself. You know, the entire thing is pretty much original. You know, there's not a lot of like direct scriptural references like straight out of the Bible, uh, but it is based off of a lot of those truths. Yeah, and sometimes I just look up, you know, verses based on a certain mm-hmm. uh, theme, and I just looked up some based on like strength and yeah, uh, you know, you have like Exodus fifteen two, mm-hmm. the Lord is my strength and my song, yep, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Mm-hmm. Um. Or you have like Isaiah forty one ten, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Yeah. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Mm-hmm. So uh, passages I brought up, obviously I brought up, and this is looking at the first stanza, verse 1. Uh, obviously Psalm 46, I think is a great place to start. Uh, I also wrote down to read Psalm 18. Uh, I think that does help us as well with this idea of God is our fortress as well, another psalm that I brought out. Uh, I brought up Genesis 3. Uh, So the first line talks about our ancient foe. Right. You know, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. You know, Genesis 3 shows us that, how ancient this foe is and also how crafty he is. You know, it's literally what he's called is crafty. Yeah, and I even brought up First John five nineteen, which tells us that this world lies in the power of the evil one. You know, there Satan has no equal on this earth. You know, or at least he did when Jesus was on the earth. Yeah, but until Jesus comes back, you know, on this earth, on this earth, he, he has no equal. Yeah, and I think that's one evident, and I mean, it's because you know we have a sin nature, mm-hmm. so we don't have that direct line to God anymore. We don't have God's spirit indwelt in us mm-hmm. inherently and naturally. So we don't have that power against him anymore. Yeah. But for believers, they do. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty of that's where it starts. And it starts, uh, you know, distressing. You know, you're like, I mean, our ancient foe is out there. We can't beat him. You know, then we go straight into our stanza too, where it's like, if it was on our own strength, then we would lose. We're not the right man on our side. You know, I wrote down victory is found in Jesus. First uh, Corinthians fifteen fifty five through fifty eight is a great place to look at that. Uh, I put full fulfillment, and we're gonna I'm gonna revisit these chapters again. But Revelation nineteen and Revelation twenty. You know when Satan is bound, when that true victory comes, and I think that's a really cool application for kind of helping to show us. You know, you know that's the final line. He must win the battle. You know, Jesus is going to win that final battle. Technically, he's already won it. You know, that victory is already there. It's already sure. Uh, Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, that's Matthew 12, 8, Mark 2, tw- Mark two twenty eight, and Luke 6, 5, where Jesus says the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's where that comes from. Uh, H to H, he is the same. Uh, verses to bring up, Hebrews 13, 8, Revelation 1, 8, 
and Revelation twenty two thirteen. I know I'm going through these quick, but this is more for your own study afterwards, I would say. And again, like we did last week, it's a great time to plug our Patreon. You know, uh, patreon.com forward slash the upper room discourse. All these verses are going to be posted there. And uh, you don't have to pay to be able to see that. You can see those just free of charge. So just want to give that little plug there because I need it. Uh, Verse three, it's a lot of the same of Revelation 19 and 20. Uh, Again, it just talks about uh, just the prince of darkness, about the devils, basically who we're fighting in this world. Uh, But really, you know, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Again, you know, that end will come. Satan will be ultimately defeated finally for all. You know, and you see that in Revelation there at the end. Yeah, I was going to say, you see just how easily he's bound. Mm -hmm. I mean, in all honesty, like, God doesn't even have to speak for Satan to be bound. He just think it, Mm -hmm. and it happens. Yeah. Uh, And then we see, you know, I just wanted to bring it up. His kingdom is forever, the last line. Mm-hmm. We see that in Revelation as well, the, yes. with the new kingdom. Yeah, skipping ahead, but yes. Yeah. Again, like always. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's in verse 4. I put down Revelation 22.5. Essentially, the kingdom is forever. That's just one passage. I mean, we could pull up a large number of passages about how God's kingdom is forever. Yeah. Like, you see it throughout all of Scripture. You see that. Yeah, you see it in Genesis. We talked about that when we went over Genesis with... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the blessing of Judah. Yeah. Um, you see it tons in Psalm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see it in Isaiah, prophets. You see it in Jesus' own words. Uh, you know, the kingdom of God is forever. Even in the Lord's, uh, not the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. Because um, it's really the disciples' prayer. But, mm-hmm. you, know, his king, uh, you know, his kingdom endures forever on earth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got that so wrong, but. No, I'm trying I mean, to think on the fly. No, I mean, it's fair, but it's true. I mean, that's what we talk about, his kingdom coming. you know. But his kingdom is everlasting. It's an everlasting kingdom. God is everlasting. His kingdom is too. Uh, the only other passage I brought out, because obviously there's so much more scripture we can bring out of this, uh, but I wanted to bring up Matthew chapter 10, uh, specifically verse 28, which talks about do not fear those who can kill the body. You know, And I feel like that, that whole chapter almost really encompasses that fourth verse. Uh, and honestly, I believe that fourth verse was written out of Martin Luther's personal experience was kind of where he was getting that fourth verse from, you know, and it's very similar because that's what you see in Matthew chapter 10, you know, the 70 are sent out. I think it's 72. Is my brain not there? Is it 70? My brain's not. When the disciples are sent out. Yeah. I can't remember. They were sent out in pairs though. Oh, we got that part down. I'm running on like no sleep. <laughs> uh, but we talk, Jesus talks about persecution and how persecution will come. And obviously Martin Luther did face a lot of persecution. So last verse I have, this is really just a passage of almost application that I think would go really well with hearing this hymn and listening to it and studying it. And that's Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, which talks about the armor of God. You know, because that's really what I feel like this song is telling us. It's like we're going out there in a spiritual warfare. But remember, the battle is his and he has won. You know, we don't need the fear. You know, we don't have to fear Satan. Yeah, and I was actually thinking about that before uh, we started talking about the song. Mm-hmm. was Ephesians 6 and the armor of God. And it specifically says that our foe is the devil. Yeah. And that it's the principalities, the power mm-hmm. of darkness and evil and the world out there. 
Yeah, I think there's like a readiness um, that obviously comes like a preparation readiness that comes from Ephesians 6 that's also really prevalent here uh, throughout this hymn Mm. uh, that I think like even as you're singing it but also thinking through it uh, but really kind of brings forth of kind of what you were saying earlier of like I'm ready Mm -hmm. like I'm ready to go into battle now the the difference is we know that Christ has already won the battle uh, but even in that I think it's helpful really to think through uh, like I would think this would be like a good morning Mm. like uh, reminder of uh, not as much of the celebratory at the end of the day uh, as much as it is really the leading into of the morning mm. uh, and the rest of the day. Um, but I just feel like it's kind of, kind of works well there with Ephesians six when it comes to the preparation and then the leading in kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I do give it a four out of five, uh, but again, it's because it's mostly original, you know, it's not just straight scripture. Right. Uh, I will say there is one line uh, that I think a less mature Christian or someone that doesn't understand it might be problematic uh, it does say the man of God's own choosing. You know, Jesus was not just a man. I feel like somebody could take that and be like, it says that he's, it says he's a man right here, the man that God chose. Uh, but I mean, and that's really about it. I don't think there's a lot of negative. I just want to bring that one line up and just mention it just so it's out there and we know. Obviously, we understand that's not what he meant by that, and that's right. not what it says. For sure. Uh, final thoughts. Uh, it's a 4.25 out of 5. So really good score. good score. Yeah. I wrote down this song fits into a worship set really well. You know, honestly, any worship set, I think it would fit. Uh, But I think the best use of this is as a final song at the end of a service. You know, because that's what this song does. It prepares us for that battle as we're leaving those walls. You know, almost like a hymn to sing as we're going out. I did write that I do think this song may need to be retranslated. You know, it's it's a 500-year-old song. And the most well-known translation is already almost 200 years old. Yeah, it makes it, like I said earlier, it makes it difficult to read it. Yeah. Um, that's all there is to it. Mm. It's just different times, yeah. different language. You know, back then they would have understood it a lot better because that's how they talked. You know, as opposed to now it's, you know, English changes so much over time. I'm actually going to like push back a little bit. I'm actually okay <laughs> with the uh, with the ancient language here. And I think the reason for that is because I, I guess I would go back to the integrity mm. of the song itself. Um, but I guess I battle myself on this whole thing anyway. Cause like if you look at other hymns that are like probably from the same mm-hmm. time period, you don't really have the, the level of depth of battle between mm-hmm. the language. So there is fairness to that. I guess I just, I guess just, I don't know. Maybe it's cause I'm a, reformed like historian <laughs> kind of guy that like the, loves it but well the other thing is the most well-known translation isn't even a direct translation for sure you know and the first translation was done like a couple years after it was written yeah you know because if you go to obviously if you go to like a lutheran church they'll sing a different translation of this that's more accurate to what martin luther wrote yeah um, you know if we're going to keep the integrity we gotta sing it in german let's do it with the original melody because the original melody is slightly different. I think Sam sang a song in German one time, so maybe he can uh, he can figure this one out. Yeah, yeah. Because I surely can't. I can't sing, much less German. I can sometimes barely read English. That's right. <laughs> so obviously, we have the question: Should you play this on a Sunday morning with the congregation? 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Uh, I do think the best context for this song is actually outside of the Sunday service. Because again, I mean, that's what the song is about, is about being out in the world while this battle is raging. Yeah, I've actually, I've, I've kind of appreciated what we do here at OVU when we play this song for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like it's kind of, it's always been at a time where there seems to be intention mm-hmm. rather than a time where it could be kind of misunderstood. Um, and so I feel like, but I totally agree with what mm-hmm. you're saying. I think that's one thing that I've, it's it's hard to find a, the best place for it, I guess, in some worship services yeah. in modern context. Mm-hmm. Um, like if I'm at a contemporary church, uh, this might be an interesting uh, one to try to figure out. Uh, but I think for here, like we've I think we've done a pretty good job of kind of not only placement of it, um, but bringing attention to it as well. Yeah. So uh, we're going to go ahead and take a little bit of a break here, uh, and then we'll come back with our second segment. So uh, we'll see y'all in a minute. Oakview Baptist Church is located at 810 Oakview Road on the corner of Johnson Street and Oakview. Join us for Bible Fellowship every Sunday morning from 9.30 to 10.30 and for service from 10.45 to noon or on Sunday evenings from 6 to 7 for our evening service. If you are college age or a young adult, you can join us for The View on Sunday evening at the same time as the main service. On Wednesday night from 6.30 to 8, we have Word of Life for the youth, Awana and Cubbies for the kids, and an adult Bible study led by our pastor. Check out the links in the description of the YouTube video for past services or more info. back from the break we're going to take a couple of minutes here to give you a little story so if you want to close your eyes if it's safe to do so um, then do it you don't have to but yeah let's start this story it is circa 1500 AD and you are living as an Augustinian friar in Germany your life is devoted to prayer writing hymns reading and studying scripture and doing other forms of God's work. The Roman Catholic Church has been busy convincing people that sin could be partially or fully covered by paying physical money to the church. This is known as indulgence. Your doctorate in theology and time spent in God's word have led you to the right conclusion. Sin is only forgiven and pardoned by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross if you believe. And your time spent reading Paul's epistle of Romans supports this. So you construct a letter of 95 grievances against the Roman Catholic Church on this point. You nail them to the door of the All Saints Church, and thus you are excommunicated from all Roman Catholic Church activities. But what a blessing that is, for you become a proprietor of Protestantism. Who are you? You are the German, Martin Luther, and you will become one of the most famous Reformationists of all time. So that was our story about Martin Luther, and now we'll give it over to Cameron to uh, tell you a little about it, a little bit about his life and some other stuff. Yeah. So uh, who is Martin Luther? The best. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah. So 
basically, I think you kind of have to a little bit understand what's going on in medieval Christianity at that point, or really the church itself. Um, so without being able to do a long spiel on that, basically just a lot of turmoil, but a lot of authority uh, that the church gives itself uh, that uh, overall really isn't in its own hands to have. Uh, and so you have many people following uh, that authority. Um, and so ultimately we know that be the papal authority, uh, but uh, with those issues comes about uh, really I think uh, I think there should be some credit here given I think we could give a lot of credit to Martin Luther and other reformers but God working in the midst of people that would have been unlikely um, is is pretty cool um, and so uh, really even before this you have um, Gutenberg who's uh, with the printing press in Germany you see that kind of rising you see Martin Luther being uh, kind of convicted in its own right um, as uh, I'm kind of fast forwarding a little bit. Obviously, he was born, I guess, a little older. Uh, <laughs> but he basically has uh, kind of these experiences within his life to where uh, he really begins to really evaluate not only who God is, uh, but at the same time, like what the world around him really is supposed to look like, not what it does look like. And so in that, uh, he has a, these challenges, I guess, but uh, he could have basically was going to school for really uh, basically three main options, but mm-hmm. uh, was supposed to be something, what we would call today, like high up, like <laughs> uh, really, really sound money-making job here in America. Uh, it's kind of one of the places he could have been whether we think of like law, medicine, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but instead, obviously encounters a, like a thunderstorm uh, and feels involuntarily through that thunderstorm, uh, basically feels like, hey, God, if you get me out of this, uh, basically I've, I've become a monk. Uh, and so uh, <laughs> he switches, uh, goes to school uh, for that. Um, and and one of the things I think that we, we often miss is that um, – at least what I see in his life uh, is we kind of that formative time within that education kind of gets somewhat linked to his salvation and then the nailing of the 95 theses. Uh, I would probably argue that he's not saved when he nails uh, the 95 theses. Um, And there's kind of multiple reasons why. Um, But he even points to, really himself, he points to about 1519. Mm-hmm. Um, so 1517, 90, 90, 95 theses, you're looking about 1519. Um, and just a quick plug, but one of the things we've been doing in our view, uh, the College and Young Adult here at OVU, is we've been studying the, the Book of Psalms, a collection of them. And uh, Martin Luther attributes uh, the Book of Psalms as being uh, a leading uh, agent, so to speak, of helping him I don't only see God rightly, mm-hmm. uh, but in his salvation. And so, um, anyways, from there, you basically have this man who is very passionate, uh, has pride, but kind of in, in more of a good way than a bad, although we know that there that is still there. Um, we'll get to that in a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but a guy who is um, just really passionate uh, for uh, really wanting truth yeah. and clarity. And within that, basically battled 
uh, papal authority, indulgences. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll get to some of those more things coming up. But uh, ultimately to his death, really sought to uh, – I don't really, really want to – I never really like to look at it as like he just came in and just wanted to reform the church. When I, when I hear somebody say that, I think of like, you know, I'm in a traditional setting church mm-hmm. and right. we're going to change the church completely over. Yeah, uh, I think he just wanted to get to the pure, true church. And so if that took that, then it did. Yeah. But overall, I think it was really for that. Uh, I, I feel like uh, that that is what I feel like we think of mostly when we think of Reformation mm-hmm. is totally redoing how the church works. But I think during this time and even in times prior, it's, you know, reforming doctrine and theology. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we begin to see uh, with the 95 Thesis. Because, uh, sure. I mean, that is obviously wrong theology that you can pay your way out of having all these sins against you. Yeah. And uh, even whether Luther was a believer or not when he posted them, I, I don't think it honestly matters, but he sees the problem there. And I think that is what matters. Yeah, absolutely. And even what gets lost in all this, I mean, even if you wanted to go to like, let's hear this and this and you're like, man, what's, what's something about like his personal life? Well, even his like, uh, his wife was one of the people that he ended up having rescue. Mm. Um, and she's one of the 12 that was really rescued. Um, and so in that, they had six children. Um, and it's just really cool to see, like, even Katerina von Bora was very influential, but mm-hmm. also kind of crucial during this whole thing. And so as a pastor, I think through, like, man, like, uh, just the rise of fame that Martin Luther experienced but yet the consistency uh, and the um, just kind of sort of the respect but balance, I guess, mm-hmm. in his life, uh, I think could definitely be attributed even to multiple facets, but even home where his wife, you know, how, how she was with not only him but also family-wise as well. Mm. Yeah, and something interesting to point out is that, you know, we think of monks— and the sense of like they're in a temple, they're in a monastery, and that's where they spend their whole entire life from the moment mm-hmm. that it seems like they're born till the moment they die. And while for some that may be true, we obviously, you know, see here that Martin Luther had a family. Mm-hmm. And whether they, I don't know if they lived in, the mon- in a monastery or not, did they? Yeah, they moved into one. Wow. Yep, so they lived in a monastery. And that's, uh, yeah, I mean, and that's, I think, I think the reason why I wanted to bring that up especially is because I feel like a lot of people, when they think of the Reformation, they view Martin Luther as like some sensationalist, Mm. whereas I I think he's a common guy. I don't think God chose an extraordinary man. I think he chose a common man uh, who could be his instrument for God's glory and to help uh, really bring the church into a place, uh, you know, that could be fruitful, but mm-hmm. also bear forth in longevity. Um, but there's so many things to be look back and be thankful for. I mean, even the printing press, the rise mm-hmm. of it at the time, right. uh, Martin Luther's fame spread simply because an intervention that spurred mm-hmm. on being able to, and he's like, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to use this outlet because this is a way to get more information out and to be able to use it wisely. And so instead of other people using it, he blew them up mm-hmm. and 
got to a place where now everybody's like, and what's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. And why was that printing press so important? And, you know, the printing of Martin Luther's translation of the Bible. Yeah. So at the time, uh, so one of the like issues uh, within even the papal authority is, okay, so I guess say you take a traditional church setting, mm-hmm. uh, even today, uh, a lot of people come to church and they're listening to a sermon. And even if we would encourage people uh, to still think critically and well within their own mind, even through scripture. Uh, so an example of that would be saying like, don't take everything, mm-hmm. you know, from your pastor. It's like, man, run that through this lens of scripture. Right. Uh, the people then were really reliant upon the authority because there was no translation in their language. Mm-hmm. And so within that, the authority was, ha- was utilizing it to their own advantage. So, uh, the papal authority was utilizing uh, translations from Latin. And so a good example of this uh, would be uh, the papal authority's um, translation of the word repentance mm-hmm. actually bore forth uh, where we get penance from. Um, but Martin Luther's translation, when he went back to the original, so Luther really mm-hmm. wanted to go back to Greek, for example, uh, when he reads repentance, that's a, absolutely not <laughs> what he gets. Mm-hmm. And so when the people hear that translation for the first time, once he does translate it into German, it's like, whoa, like, okay, this is not what I've heard for all this time. Yeah. Years. And so the, the authority there was really utilizing what they could, which is uh, that they could uh, exercise over these people and kind of get them to believe like what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And Martin Luther is like, you know what? I mean, it even took him getting locked into a, uh, castle, which I've actually been able to be at and in the room uh-huh. of, which was really cool. Um, cool. But he's, it's a long story, but basically he's, he ends up being locked into uh, a room um, at Vorberg Castle. And as he is, that's where you get New Testament translation first, uh, and then you eventually get the uh, entire Bible in German. And we know from being able to read it in English was how it's important to us to read um, something that's from original sources, but now uh, they get the opportunity, uh, mm-hmm. or at that point, uh, in German from uh, not just a Latin translation, but really more from a Greek and Hebrew. Uh, and it's just super influential. Uh, give him a lot of credit for all that was going on that he did that. But the printing press then allows that to be printed mm-hmm. in a way that had never been seen before. And so common people not only can now receive something printed to read, mm-hmm. but they can now read scripture in their language, completely revolutionary and totally changed. That had that, the printing press rise had to have happened to not only help Luther, but also to further the spread of the translation and to help people. Yeah, and a point further to add to this time period uh, and it goes back to what you said about uh, the Bible not being in the language of these people, mm-hmm. okay, is the papal authorities were were definitely controlling, uh, you know, the use of the Bible. You yeah. know, you would go to the church if you wanted to read it or listen to it, and most times you just listen to it, right? And so if I'm not mistaken, one of the things that came up through this time is that it became illegal to reprint or to print your own Bible. I'm not mistaken. 
And so when Luther does this, when he prints that Bible, that's when he gets even more of these excommunication threats, death threats, he's locked up. And so you just, I mean, he, he quite honestly becomes a martyr. I wouldn't say specifically because he translated the Bible. There's definitely more to it than that, but I think that's a big factor in it. Yeah, and and I think overall, I think what I what I think the three of us would want a listener to understand is we can Luther has his faults. Okay, so right. the anti-Semitism that comes, uh, some of the some of the things that happens or that he does, you know, it's just like any of us fallible beings, we would look at and say, man, that was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think sometimes the, like, bullish mindset we might have with Luther, uh, you know, which is very much there, uh, doesn't take away. Sometimes I think when we, when I, like, when I think of my bullish I think of somebody who just is kind of like uncontrolled and like reacts off of or bases action off of reaction mm-hmm. essentially. Right. And I don't I really don't think Luther uh really did that to that level. I think it was more of uh like the passionate side of really wanting to hone in on integrity and truth. Um, but it didn't take away from the fact, I mean, he was bullish mm-hmm. and like he was, you know, but I yeah, guess it literally the, became his nickname. Yeah. yeah. I can't absolutely. remember his full, but it was definitely all of something. Yeah. And it's, and it, it's, I just think like sometimes we think of it so negatively of like, if you were to say that now, mm-hmm. it's like, man, I, I do not want to be that guy. And although I'm not saying be like Luther, I do think that that standing firm or really the honest approach to, man, let me really go back to the scriptures mm-hmm. and let me really hone in on what, what God is saying uh, and allow that to be my voice. I think that that is an approach that I think all of us should have. Right, and it's and it's interesting. I, I keep thinking the anti-Semitic part that you brought up. Uh, when I was doing the, re- the overview for Romans this week, it really, you know, there's one part in there where Paul is... And I guess I'll just go and talk about it now, but I'll get I'll talk about it yeah. again later. Um, but Paul is talking about how some of Israel is cut off from the branch. Okay, so not all of Israel is going to be saved. All right, so just because a Jew is an Israelite does not mean that they have faith in God. Okay, so they're cut off. Right, just like anybody else who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then the Gentiles are grafted in to uh, Israel, in a sense, based on their faith Mm -hmm. and to the heirship through Abraham, okay? And so what he tells those Gentile believers not to do is to go and boast in the Jewish people's face Mm -hmm. and and to not go and be all like, hey, look at me. Yeah. I'm part of Israel now. Ha ha, you're not. And... I was just kind of connecting the dots, and I I think in a way, I don't know if Martin Luther would have ever repented of that. I don't know if he would have ever, you know, came to Romans and saw that and been like, wow, I really failed in this part. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I, I can't say I wasn't there 500 years ago, but I do see the connections, and 
that that is a fault. So I mean, it just goes back to what you're saying that we're all fallible beings, and Martin Luther is one of them. Um, and we don't discredit what he's done for Protestantism because of it, but we don't berate him because of it either, because we are not the judge of any person's heart. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think I think that's why maybe we do have an, a different approach when it comes to like Calvin, Zwingli, Lanston, different ones that are involved in the Reformation. Uh, they were they were later, and so Luther kind of being the predecessor of like the movement, um, I think gives him sort of like a you're going to get some somebody who's raw, and right. and in that brings forth mixture of things. Yeah, right. Yes, I, I mean thinking through like for example like coming up, so you got uh, October thirty first. Um, Obviously, one of the things we we know of from this, obviously, is the nailing of the 95 Theses. Mm-hmm. Um, matter of fact, my homeschool class, we're definitely celebrating this oh. uh, for uh, just kind of thinking through it, I guess, I should say. Uh, but we're, we're going to uh, definitely look more to the Reformation mindset uh, than Halloween, for sure. Uh, but, uh, man, uh, so I... I've been there as well. Uh, thankful for the Reformation tour at Southeastern. So props to you guys for that, Doctor Ecker. Uh, but uh, within that, uh, man, what a moment! Um, but it, it, you know, for those of you who might be listening, you're like, okay, so they mentioned October 31st. They mentioned mm-hmm. 95 theses. You know, so this is a moment which uh, Luther challenges and nails, uh, really, essentially. 95 one to two sentences worth of declarative statements Mm -hmm. that are specifically against uh, many things within papal authority, indulgences, penance, uh, basically uh, anything that uh, he felt like was kind of getting out of control Mm -hmm. um, and sinful. And so uh, that's the day that it was on and is celebrated because of that. Uh, one of the things that is at least uh, worthy of thinking through, and that's kind of what I was speaking at earlier, um, is that there are things that are within those 95 theses uh, that Luther is still clinging to when it comes to um, the Catholic Church, essentially, um, that would probably suggest that uh, he's either... I would say he's not saved at that time, or if you do say he's saved, it's at least early on in like mm-hmm. the sanctification of like, you know, kind of getting away from it. Um, but it kind of gives us an idea of like Luther nailed him emphatically for a reason. Um, if you've never read them, I'd encourage you read them. Matter of fact, read the ninety five theses on October thirty first and read or actually sing. Mighty Fortress is our God. Uh, that would be a pretty sweet way of... Uh, is that how you celebrate Reformation Day? That's right. And dress up like a monk. So, I mean, yeah. you got to do all of it. Uh, <laughs> not, a, not like a Buddhist monk, but like a, a friar. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, That's not true. a Buddhist monk. That's yeah. not what we're talking about. For sure. About. <laughs> For sure. But uh, yeah, you can wear your like, Luther nailed it shirt. That's probably what I'm going to wear. Um, awesome. I need to get me know, one. You should yes. get me one. Yeah, you should. We should give a listener a free one. How about that? So... Ooh. I mean, if if you if you can tell me 
one of us. Let's see. Let's give a little trivia here. So you can tell us the. Though this is simple. We'll make it simple. If you can respond and comment, either Luther's wife's name, which we've mentioned, or the translation of the Bible into what language that Luther did it in, which that should be pretty simple. We'll award somebody with a free T-shirt. How about that? Yeah, you guys hear that? Some good incentive right there. Yeah. Uh, probably earliest hearing of this will be Spotify. You, uh, if you uh, scroll down after listening to this episode, like if you're listening on Spotify right now, just scroll up. You'll see Q&A. It's a perfect spot to respond. Yeah. Or you could always watch the YouTube. Yeah. I mean, it comes out a week later, but. That's right. You, you might still fine. win. You could, <laughs> you yeah, you definitely win. still win. The one thing I do want to mention too, uh, with with Luther really there is, um, you know, I think all of us. So I want to kind of connect it with all of us. So, all of us, I think, at the end of the day, we don't we don't know what our last breath will be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know that if you were to sit here and think, man, if I could, like let's say I knew, like let's say I was, you know, eighty years old, and I was on my deathbed, and I was thinking back and reflecting on my life. Well, I think as a believer, one of the things that we're going to do is we know, especially out of in conjunction with Luther, we know that our works don't save us. Mm. So going with justification, we know that it is a work of God and God alone. Um, and so it is not our work, but I, we do know that our works matter. Uh, they show and reveal our faith. And so I think within that, we naturally, as people— we think back, we reflect, and we're like, man, does our life count? Mm-hmm. Does it actually make an impact? And and I think one of the things that, for me with Luther, that I really appreciate um, is that we have big moments. We have the 95 Theses. Mm-hmm. We have the translation into German. Uh, we have the catechisms, mm-hmm. uh, the larger and smaller that Luther uh, produces. There's, there's so many different works uh, that are endless, and I think we look at those, we get caught up in those, and for its own reason and right reason, we, we probably do. Uh, but I just love the fact that God took this basic man mm-hmm. and his contributions, uh, I'm not really as caught up on the, the largeness of them as the consistency of you know this desire to really honor the Lord um, and to bring others uh, into a place in which they not only see God in a, in a right and true light, mm-hmm. but also that they realize like their lives. Then I've, I've always heard like people. I, I'm very Calvinistic leaning and thinking. So, if, like for example, like I've heard a lot of people in Reformation they'll they'll say like, well, you know, why do you like they'll pin back and say mm-hmm. like, well, should you go reach the lost then? Because like they're elected, you know, so things like that. And it's like. I think you're missing the point. I think a, somebody who's reformed and somebody like a Luther would say, no, it gives us even more of a drive to go and do mm-hmm. so. Right. Um, and so I think that's kind of applicable here. Uh, really thinking of this contribution impact, uh, I think that's one of the things that's like really stands out with Luther uh, is that his his impact uh, not only permeates just in a time period, it continues on even until today. Mm-hmm. We see the thumbprint of Luther's works today. But I think really what I like to look at um, is behind that is I think he helped his desire was to help bring others uh, to see Jesus greater. 
And, uh, man, I think that would be what I'd love to say mm-hmm. at the end of my life is that I might not be able to translate a Bible into a language for somebody, right. um, but to be able to say at one point that, you know what, I put forth every effort I possibly could have mm-hmm. to honor the Lord in my life. I might not have done it perfectly, but I did it in a way that uh, I wanted to help bring others closer to Him. Yeah, and that's another point brought up in Romans as well is that we are to be a living sacrifice. Yeah, I think that's in chapter seven or eight, somewhere around there, six, seven or eight, something like that. Um, but Paul specifically says that you know your life is to be a sacrifice, live to the glory of God. Paraphrasing, obviously, um, but and he uses flawed people to do it. Absolutely, he does. Martin Luther's one of them. Paul's one of them. I'm one of them. Cameron and Felipe here sitting with me. We're all flawed people. You who are listening, if you're a believer you are flawed as well. Like we all are. It's because of our sin nature. But once again, we're talking about justified. We are righteous by the blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. We're righteous through our faith in Christ. We're justified through that faith. We're justified by believing in Christ because that is the grace right there that we don't have to die for our sins because Christ did. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're justified um what was the other? Grace, faith, we're justified through Scripture, and we'll get to that one later. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's really nothing else we have to do. Yeah, I mean, obviously we do have works that uh, they prove that faith. But we, as we've seen through Luther's song, as we've talked about through Luther's life, that we don't have to justify ourselves. God has done it for us, mm-hmm. and that's the blessing. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So uh, it was wonderful having you here on our podcast today. Thank you, Cameron. Absolutely. It was a pleasure being here. Well, we'll see you guys after the next break. Yeah, we're going to take a quick little segment here. Uh, So I go ahead, I guess, grab a glass of water or something, take a seat. I don't know what you guys are doing. Uh, But, yeah, we'll be right back. We're going to be looking at our word study, uh, which I'm very excited for, and and our book study, which is going to be the Book of Romans. Romans, yep. So uh, we'll see you guys in a minute. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Alright, and welcome back. Uh, We'll be taking just a few moments here in a second to go through a little story um but and it kind of coincides along with our uh book study of romans and our justified word study today so if you don't mind just kind of picture this scene in your head it is circa 30 a.d you are a full-blood jew of the tribe of benjamin and a pharisee a high honor in jewish society you are an advocate of god's law and will go to any lengths necessary 
to make sure it is upheld and untainted, even killing since it is permitted by this law. Certain Jews have been going around proclaiming that the recently killed criminal Jesus is God in the flesh and came to redeem all people. Your law and tradition would call this blasphemy, and for that is the death punishment of stoning. On this particular day, a young man, Stephen, is stoned while you sit idly by. He prays for his prosecutor's forgiveness moments before his life is taken. Days later, as you travel to Damascus, a light appears before you, and your vision is consumed. The risen Jesus, the one whose people you were killing, is before you. You are told to go to Damascus with a new mission, Seek Ananias. After a few days, you meet Ananias and are baptized. Your life from that moment on the desert road is completely changed, and now you preach the gospel that you originally suppressed to Gentile nations. Who are you? You are Saul, who is also called Paul. So, thank you for sitting through that little story right there. Uh, so, that's kind of the story behind Saul's conversion from Judaism mm-hmm. into Christianity. Yeah. Um, kind of goes through a little bit of what was happening. Saul was a Pharisee. Um, as I said, and he was also from the tribe of Benjamin. So he had the authority to do things like carrying out uh, the killing of blasphemers, Mm -hmm. which is what Christians at this time would have been seen as. And it's just amazing that somebody who did acts like that, acts of violence, as we would call them, against the Christian community in the first century became one of the greatest preachers of the gospel Mm -hmm. that the first century knew. The greatest, I would say. And that's all because of like I said, justification, Um, you know, and we'll get to what that is in just a second, but it's also because of salvation and the power of God to bring people to salvation. So we kind of want to look at this word, getting straight into it, but, and and it is justified, the actual word we'll be looking at, and it comes from the Greek word, uh, and this is, I kind of had to write it out phonetically Mm -hmm. in order to pronounce right, but it's vikeo, and it means to justify, now, if you run it through a translator, mm-hmm. um, it, it comes out quite literally, depending on which one you use, either I'm right, meaning I'm correct, or I'm entitled. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ran it through the Bing one. I don't really trust Bing, but <laughs> I ran it through there. And then I ran it through the Google Translate, and that's the two I came up with. But looking at uh, this word right, all right, we see another word kind of coincide with this right righteous Mm -hmm. okay and then we also see something else right relationship is kind of the idea we're getting with this word justified so we're righteous and we have a right relationship and who is that relationship it's with god Mm -hmm. and it comes through jesus christ and what i mean there's a proper relationship Uh, because what we have to understand and this goes back to you know week one of the podcast talking about how sin entered the world. Mm. And because of that sin, we have a broken relationship with God. Uh, Something I don't think I mentioned in week one is that we, I say we, but Adam and Eve were quite literally filled with the breath of God, Mm -hmm. the like life of God almost. And then when they sinned, they lost that. They lost that connection with God. And so now we have to be restored by God and that's through Jesus Christ. So that's kind of what we're looking there. And 
it's not just a you know a relational point of view, a mm-hmm. relational standing, but it also has legal and moral implications. Mm-hmm. And we kind of got into that last week when we talked about uh, the Day of Atonement, yes, and Leviticus. And we saw how Leviticus kind of plays this part where we are to be holy mm. before God, and we can only do that through justification. Yes. Um, so to kind of go further into this, the, the first time we see this word, uh, vikeo, is in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 19. And then the last time we see it is in James 2 and verse 25. And kind of going through that uh, is the justification is by works. Mm. Uh, and But it's not just works. It's also by faith as we understand and we'll see that through Romans, right? Um, and a couple of other verses I want to mention in James as well, the same chapter, are 21 and 24. Uh, they kind of go over that as well. And you can look these up in your own time. But what's interesting is Paul, who's, you know, Saul, who's also called Paul, mm-hmm. um, it's not he didn't change his name That's from Saul to Paul. Technically the same name. Yeah. Uh, if you literally look up what the name means it it means the same thing one is just hebrew and the other is greek so no name change there um but this word is used in romans chapter 2 and verse 13 uh chapter 3 and verse 4 uh chapter 3 verse 20 24 26 28 and 30 of chapter 3 uh in chapter 4 it's used in verses 2 and 5 uh in chapter 5 it's used in verses 1 and 9 um Chapter 6 and verse 7. And I'll get into that one in a minute because that one's a pretty special case, at least how it's translated in English. Um, and then finally in chapter 8, verses 30 and 33. And something interesting to note is that in chapter 3 alone, this word is used eight times. That's a lot. It is for one chapter. Um, and something else to note is that some of the occurrences in uh, chapter 3, uh, one of them in chapter 3, verse 26, and then the other in chapter 4 and verse 5, mm-hmm. um, there's a couple of other words used, uh, vikeos and vikeosune. Mm-hmm. Uh, vikeosune is used in chapter 3 and verse 26, um, and then vikeos is in chapter 4 and verse 5. So they're using the same root word, Mm -hmm. and I'll actually go and look at those verses right quick because they're pretty important. Uh, So we're talking about chapter 3 and verse 26 for Vikeosune, and it says, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness, that's where that word right there is used, at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier, that's where it's used again, I believe, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Mm -hmm. So that's the Vikeosune in chapter 3. And then uh, chapter 4 and verse 5, uh, we see, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Mm-hmm. So we see different words. These would be synonyms. Yeah, uh, That's what we would call them in English, synonyms. Uh, they mean the same thing, righteousness and justified they have the same same implications that that legal and moral implication. Yeah. 
So go back to last week. Uh, just think about a courtroom and you're absolved of whatever crime you committed for free, mm-hmm. basically. Um, which gets me to uh, chapter 6 and verse 7 to bring it up right quick. Um, and this is what that verse says. For he who has died is freed from sin. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, I think it's a very special use of that word there because it's freed. And we actually talked about this earlier um, and I believe this segment with Cameron. Yeah. But it's that same thought right there. We are freed from sin. It's no longer over us. And God does not see our sin because of the righteousness mm-hmm. of Christ imputed. So basically like sown into us. Yeah. Uh, so just, you know, some kind of interesting things there. Um, now to really get into like Romans and uh, I'll kind of just go through, you know, each chapter and kind of what it's about. Um, And what you'll end up seeing is if you've read Romans before and if you've read Galatians before, pretty much the same exact letter. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap between those two. Yeah, and whether that's because Paul was writing them at the same time, I don't believe that. Um, They were definitely written at separate times, separate situations. Um, They do cover a lot of the same things, especially the law being freed from the law, things like that. And we'll see it as we go through. Um, And you actually mentioned the focus verses that I was going to bring up Mm -hmm. uh, for Romans, which is actually um, Romans 3, verses 21 through 31. You only mentioned 21 through 24, but... Yeah, I only took a small segment of it. Yeah. I I mean, I would recommend the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, But 21 through 31, um, and... We all know Romans three twenty three for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, um, but you know there's a whole bunch of context around that, mm-hmm. and so you start in I would say start in verse twenty one, but even still that's far from where the context actually begins. Um, but anyways, like I said, chapter three verse twenty one through thirty one, it kind of gives a whole synopsis of what Romans is really about mm-hmm. from chapter one to chapter sixteen. Um. And something interesting to actually note here is that in these 10 verses, uh, we see every point we've hit in the last four weeks of Mm -hmm. this podcast. We do, yeah. So in verse 21, uh, you could say we see God's greatness, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And then we see his glory in verse 23, and it literally says it, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, faith, you know, we go to, we go back a verse to verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. And then again in verses 25 through 28 for faith, um, and verses 30 and 31, and then grace, we see that in verses 24 and 25, uh, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Mm-hmm. And that's where Paul gets into that verse later on in chapter 6 and 7, we're freed from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we've kind of talked about it heavily already. The author, Paul, a.k.a. Saul, Saul, a.k.a. Paul, 
doesn't really matter what you want to call them. It's the mm-hmm. same thing. Um, now, some people might find fault in Scripture because if you go to the last chapter, um, you know, we all believe this to be written by Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, but the testimony of Romans is in verse 16 and 22, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Mm-hmm. So is there a problem there? Is Paul the author, or is this guy Tertius the author? Well, oftentimes, somebody would be writing it for Paul as he was speaking it. Right, and that's the correct answer. Mm-hmm. So Paul was probably dictating this letter, mm-hmm. and Tertius was more than likely writing down his words. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not a uncommon concept because we see this done in the courtroom all the time. Yeah, uh, Somebody is sitting there typing up the whole case. They're typing up everything that's said so they can go back and be read mm-hmm. within the context of the setting and what's going on. So there's no discrepancy there. No, and oftentimes you'll sometimes see where Paul literally says, I am writing this myself. Right. Yeah, you know, he brings it out when he does write. And we know like later on, um, I don't remember which epistle it is, but he does write of a an affliction that he mm-hmm. has. And whether that was, you know, something physical like partial blindness yeah. or whatever, a sickness... Um, we do know that at some point in his life, uh, he had to rely more on people to write for him while he mm-hmm. dictated letters. Yeah. So no discrepancy there. I wouldn't even take the time to argue about that. Um, so the dating of this is around 55 to 57 AD. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of in the middle of where most people would place it. Probably It's probably more towards the later end. I would say more towards 55 AD. Would probably my best guess. Um not that important, but it kind of is, um, especially if you look at his life and where he's at. He's kind of been going around mm-hmm. in Asia Minor, Corinth, places like that, and that brings us to the location. Yeah, uh, Heavy, heavy implications in the last chapter, chapter 16, that uh, indicate this letter was probably written in Corinth mm-hmm. uh, just because of some of the people he mentions. Um, let's see here. Yeah, so like he says in verse 1 of chapter 16, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea or Cincrea. Uh That would have been in a part of Corinth. Mm-hmm. So Paul was probably residing there for a while, or at least in the area while writing this letter. And there's more names in here um, that just give further proof to that. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there should be a whole lot of debate on where this was written. So let's kind of just jump into it. Um Who's the audience? Very specifically, people in Rome. Right. And you have two sets of believers Mm -hmm. in Rome right now. Um, You have Gentile believers, and then you have Jewish believers. Mm -hmm. Okay? So that should automatically tell you that we are not the audience of this letter. Mm -hmm. Now, does it have implications for us? Yeah, but Paul was not writing to us, and we have to go into every single book of the Bible with that same thought process that we are not being written to. Uh, it's being written to somebody else. So, yeah. And he gets into that uh, later on, but yeah, so just keep in the back of your mind, Jewish believers and Gentile believers all in the same place going to the same church. Okay, that's the audience. Um, and chapter 1 and verse 7 to all who are beloved of God in Rome, 
called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So that's who we see the that's where we see the audience at. The theme, I would say, a righteous life. Uh, we see that in verses sixteen and seventeen of chapter one as well. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Mm. So I think in uh, that verse, it also shows that, you know, there's not just Gentile believers here, mm-hmm. but there's also Jewish yeah. believers. So continuing on, um, I started with a breakdown of each of the chapters. And then as I was doing this, I was like, man, this is going to take like forever if I tried to break down 16 chapters. Yeah, there's a lot in there. And there is so much here. Um, so I kind of did it for the first six, uh, which I think are the most important when it comes to theology and doctrine. Mm. And then the latter half of the book is more application. Mm-hmm. So to start off, um, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, we get the intro and greeting, obviously. Uh, verses 8 through 15 is a thanksgiving and explanation of troubles. Mm. Okay. 16 and 17 is basically the thesis statement of the book. Kind of already went over those. Uh, I say the book, but it's really a letter. Mm-hmm. Um, 18, through th- 18 through 32, um, unrighteous men and God's revelations less righteousness. Uh, so kind of the coinciding there and how they go together. Uh, verses 19 through 23 kind of broke this down a little more. There's general and natural revelation. So everybody has seen God through creation and knows of God through creation. But then there's also special revelation Mm -hmm. where that's the spirit drawing you to salvation. God's spirit, the Holy Spirit drawing you to salvation. So chapter one, and you got to remember, and this is my gripe against modern day Bibles, Mm -hmm. uh, chapter divisions. Yeah. Um, They just, you know, And Paul mentions um, a couple of times later in the book, as it is written, Mm -hmm. there weren't chapter divisions 2,000 years ago for the Old Testament. It was straight written, one page. Um, And there were no verse divisions either. So when you go into a book like this, really a letter, you should just read it straight through without stopping. Yeah, that's how it would have been. Like, that's how it would have originally been done. Yeah. And whether it was on one piece of parchment paper or not, it doesn't matter, but mm. it was all one. Um, so like I said, chapter one flows straight into chapter two, mm-hmm. uh, almost without skipping a beat. Uh, verses one through 10 uh, kind of deal with hypocrisy and judgment and who can rightly judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, verses one through, I kind of broke these down a little bit more, but one through three is condemnation through judgment. Uh, and that really follows the thought process of the previous verses, which is why I say that you should read them when like going into the other. Uh, verses 4 through 6, uh, where judging puts us. Um, some verses there, uh, Psalm 62 and verse 12, and then Proverbs 24, 12, um, are the uh, references that are specifically mentioned here. Mm-hmm. Uh, who will render to each person according to his deeds? Uh, that's coming from those two places, Psalm 62, 12, and Proverbs 24, 12. Mm-hmm. And then verses 7 through 11, God judges all people. 
So we finally see who has the right to judge, and that is God alone. Yeah. Uh, from there, verses 12 through 22 is conduct by law. Um, and what law are we talking about? Uh, specifically the Torah. Right. The Mosaic law. Yeah, and it goes back to who we're talking about writing this letter. It's Paul. Paul is a Jew who was a Pharisee from the tribe of Benjamin. Mm-hmm. He knew the law very well. That's exact, That's what that means, you know, if he was a Pharisee, is that he knew the law forward and backwards. Yeah, he was one of those who was teaching people the law. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it was in a right way or not, uh, he was teaching people the law very ceremonially and mm-hmm. ritualistically. Um, but like I said, he was teaching it to the people so that it would stay untainted mm-hmm. and so that it would stay pure and they would abide by it for salvation, basically. Yeah. Um, and so I actually want to back up for a second to the judging part um, because the law actually comes into play and judges us mm-hmm. in a sense, uh, condemns us really is what Paul would say. Uh, but what kind of judgment are we talking about? Um, it's a judging and con- and condemning based on sin committed. Mm. So the law, Jewish law, would reveal that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's even revealed in the Ten Commandments if you want to take that excerpt from the whole law, right? Do not sin. Do mm-hmm. not commit adultery. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Right there, we've all failed. Yeah. And just three of them. So that should put it in a perspective that we fail in just those ten alone. Mm-hmm. And that's where the sin comes in. So we're all guilty by law, God's law, the Torah. Yes. So we have no right to judge other people based on sin. And so the act is, you know, conduct yourself by law, by God's law that he gave to the Jews, which we talked about a little bit in Leviticus Mm -hmm. and uh, some in Exodus as well two weeks ago. So verses 12 through 16, law reveals the heart. And that's where the sin comes in, reveals that we have sin. 17 through 24, hypocrisy and keeping the law. Uh, so some uh, things to mention here. He says, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and, pro- and approve the things that are essential, mm-hmm. being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a God to the blind, a light to those who are darkness, in darkness, Uh, He goes on to say, uh, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? Mm -hmm. You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Mm -hmm. So he's getting into the hypocrisy of these Pharisees teaching the people not to do these things, but yet in their hearts they're doing them themselves. Mm -hmm. And so it really shows that sin problem there. And then he gets into true circumcision in verses 25 through 29. And it means circumcision of the heart. And he says, and he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, Mm -hmm. will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? So basically what Paul is saying there is that, you know, Gentiles who don't have the law that was given to the Israelites can keep it even though they don't have it and are circumcised by their heart in Mm -hmm. a sense. And even the Jews, the Israelites who have the law don't keep it and are therefore considered uncircumcised Yeah, because of their lack of faith. And that's what this goes back to. It's the faith and the justification and the righteousness. Mm -hmm. 
So people who are Gentiles, us, non-Jews, we can live morally and in our own minds consider ourselves righteous Mm -hmm. and be justified in a sense through that. I kind of use that word sarcastically in a sense. And then see Jews who are supposed to uphold the law and don't. And it kind of creates a problem. But that's not how we're justified. So we'll just keep going. Um, Again, you continue straight from chapter 3, I mean chapter 2 into chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Only God is righteous. Um, He specifically brings up um, a quote from Psalm 51, 4, uh, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Um, and then in verses 9 through 31, unrighteousness turned into God's righteousness. There is a plethora of Old Testament here. Uh, there is none righteous, not even one. Mm-hmm. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So a long list of... uh, Old Testament scriptures to go through, uh, starting with Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, uh, Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3, uh, Psalm 5, 9, 36 and verse 1, 140 and verse 3, and then uh, Psalm 10 and verse 7. And then the only one not in Psalm is Isaiah 59, 7. Mm. And you can check these out in in your own time and kind of compare them to what you see in chapter three, verses 10 through 18. And then after that, we come to uh, chapter four, verses one through 15. So nine, as I mentioned a second ago, nine through 31 is about unrighteousness turned into God's righteousness. And that's where we get the 21 through 31 Mm -hmm. and for all have sinned, right? And then going into chapter 4, verses 1 through 15, we have the ultimate example of faith. Mm-hmm. And who is that? Abraham. Abraham, right. And I love what our pastor here, uh, Steve is his name, so we call him Pastor Steve. Uh, in every religion, major religion, that mm-hmm. revolves around uh, God, right? Or at least what we think of God. So, Islam. Christianity and Judaism, right? I guess we could consider those like the big three. Yeah. They all revere Abraham mm-hmm. as being the greatest example of faith. Yes. And it's a fact. And we see that through his faith, he is justified, that he is the friend of God, mm-hmm. and that it's not anything he did, because you got to remember, he was a pagan. Yeah. He was a star worshiper. And he was called out of his land to go to a land that he would never see mm-hmm. and become the father of multitudes of people. And so his faith brought him to that land eventually. Yeah. And he had faith in God and did what God asked of him. I mean, he had faults along the way. 
But ultimately, he ended up doing what God wanted. Mm-hmm. So Paul goes through that, and he has some uh, he has some more references here in verses one through fifteen, uh, Psalm thirty two and verse one and verse two, uh, Genesis fifteen and verse six, uh, Genesis seventeen and verse five, Genesis fifteen and verse five and verse six. So that's getting into the part about Abraham. And then in um, chapter 4, starting at verse 16 and going all the way through chapter 5 and verse 5, we have how justification through or by faith works and not law, right? So how justification by faith works. Mm -hmm. And it's not by the law, right? Then we go through verses 6 through 11, uh, and I just simply put, while we slash are God's enemies, right? For those who believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the shed blood on the cross, Mm -hmm. that he is God come down in the form of man, and that he died for our sins and took them away so that we could have new life, we were enemies of God. Mm -hmm. And that's when he died. Now, for others... You might not be able to say that, right? And so even though you don't have that faith, God has already died for you. Jesus Christ has already died for you and for your sins. And that's the blessing. Mm -hmm. You don't have to carry that sin anymore because Christ can be your scapegoat, and he already has chosen to be the scapegoat. So in all honesty, there's no reason to not have faith in that. And believe that if you trust that he is God, and trust that he died for you, and then live your life in glory mm-hmm. for him, to glorify him, then you will be saved, you know? And so that's kind of what we're getting with. God already decided to do it before we even acknowledged him, before we ever had a heart for him, before we even decided to give him a second thought. Mm. He loved us before we first. He loved us first before we loved him. And that's the beauty of it. Continuing on, chapter 5, 12 through 21. uh, Death and sin come through one man, and life through one God man. So death and sin come through Adam, and then life comes through Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Continuing on, verse uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. We're dead to sin and alive in Christ. Uh, it's kind of a callback to chapter 3 and verse 8, um, and I'll turn there for just a second and read that. But he says, And why not say, are we slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come? Their condemnation is just. So he kind of gets to that same point. Do we sin so that grace may abound? And the obvious answer is no. You know, we're already covered with grace. So there's no more grace that can be given to us. So why sin? Why continue in sin? Continuing verse uh, 15 through 23, are we a slave to sin or are we a slave to righteousness? So do do we continue doing the things that we want to do that dishonor God, that bring us further away from God? Or do we continue doing what God wants us to do and bring us closer to God, right? And then chapter 7 kind of concludes 
uh, the talk on the law, right? Saying that we're freed from the condemnation that the law brings. And I kind of went over that earlier, right? The law reveals the sin in us because we can't uphold the law. Mm. It's impossible. Only Jesus Christ can uphold the law because he's perfect. You know, that's the standard. And that's what sin is falling short of that standard. Um, I mean, it's kind of a lackluster example, but that's what we have, like an archer shooting a bow and missing the target. As much as it, uh, you know, doesn't fit how much sin affects us and how far off the mark we are, that's the best example we have is not even reaching the target. And that's what sin does. So chapter 8 um, is about life in the flesh uh, versus life in the spirit and future glorification. Uh, one of my favorite verses to come out of this, um, let's see here. I think it's 8.16. No, I don't remember. I'll think of it later. But anyways, there's some good verses to come out of here. Um, but we no longer walk by flesh. We walk by the Spirit and the truth of the Spirit. And so that's what we hold to. Uh, chapter 9 is a callback to Paul's statement that a Jew is one inwardly. Um, and that's in chapter 2 and verse 29. So heirs to Abraham are not heirs to Abraham because they are Jewish, because they have Jewish blood flowing through them. Heirs to Abraham are ones that live by faith. Mm -hmm. And why? Because Abraham lived by faith. And so we have the same promises that we had, that he had, and we are partakers in those, even though we're Gentiles. Then chapter 10, so salvation, okay? And this is important. Salvation is open to all people. Mm -hmm. And there is a need to preach salvation to all people. And so how is, and the, and the question that comes along with that, how is a person saved? And he gives us that in verse nine, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. And then for whoever, this is verse 13, will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then this is where we get the importance of preaching the gospel, mm -hmm. preaching the salvation to the world from. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And man, it's important. Jesus gives us the same commandment in Matthew 28 the Great Commission. And he says, Lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of age. Go and preach to everybody, teaching them, baptizing them. Three imperatives there. Teach, baptize, and I just said the other one, but I forgot. Anyways, 
So it's important that we do this. And we have to send people. We can't just be a people who inwardly congregate Mm -hmm. and preach the word to ourselves and then do nothing with it. And James would James would further say this, you know, we have to be doers of the word, not merely hearers. Because what good is a person who looks at himself in the mirror and forgets what he looks like? It's, It's useless to look in a mirror then. So we have to be doing something about our faith, and that doing something is preaching the gospel. So then we get into uh, chapter, tw- skipping a chapter, chapter eleven. So, and this is kind of where we get. Um, and I also talked about this earlier mm-hmm. um, with, with Martin Luther and Israel, but Israel is not fully covered because they're Jewish or because they're God's chosen people, right? We see far too often that the Jews reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah and to the downfall of their own faith and to the downfall of their own what could be belief. Mm -hmm. You know, they're looking for a king. They're looking for, like, a warrior. Instead, they got a humble servant, and that's not what they wanted. And so we have to realize that, you know, we have that humble servant. And because... They're God's chosen people. They're not covered fully. Like there is a remnant, and that is brought out in these verses. There is a remnant of Israel that is saved and that will be saved through faith, but not all of them. Yeah. And so that's where the gospel comes in. That's where Jesus Christ opening up salvation to all people comes in. Gentile, you know, from whatever remote part of the earth, you know, you live at, it's open to you. Salvation is, right? And so we're grafted into that family, you know, heirs of Abraham. And we're also grafted into God's chosen people. Continuing in chapter 12, um, Christianity is about renewal, unity, sacrifice, love, trials, and many other things like these. So we start getting into the application side of Romans and what that looks like to actually live it out besides just preaching it. Chapters 13 and 14 they kind of go hand in hand, uh, dealing with obedience or and submission and or submission to authority, uh, relationships with others, judging others, and being aware of what you do, just generally. Um, you know, I'm not here to say that, you know, being a good person gets you to heaven because it doesn't. Um, but we do have to, as believers, as Christians, we do have to be aware of what we do because it could cause somebody else to sin or to stumble, I should say, if we're doing something that, you know, they don't understand. Yeah. Continuing chapter 15, uh, Christ, we get this again, Christ is the ultimate example of humility and service and submission. So, it's, I mean, it's interesting. And I love the way Paul structures his chapters and his verses because he gives you what we look like mm-hmm. or he brings up a topic, right? And he gives a thesis statement about it. And then he's like, all right, here's Christ. This is your example. And while we should strive to do our best, mm-hmm. we can never be perfect. But Christ has done the work for us. Christ gives us the strength to do what we have to do, to live righteously, to live by faith. And so we just have to abide in that and in his strength. As the song said, mm-hmm. 
He is our strength. He is a bulwark never failing. Yeah. And then finally, uh, we get to chapter 16. And this is just a final greeting, um, instruction, and warnings to the people in Rome. And he just says he's going to try to come and visit them Mm -hmm. uh, on his way to Spain. Um, I don't know if he ever made it to Spain or not. Um, I'd have to do more research about that. But the focus of this was really just an overview of what Romans Mm -hmm. is about. And then at the end, he gives a doxology. And this is kind of, you know, what it says in verse 16. Uh, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. And I think that's a good place to just stop right there. Yeah. Um, there's, there's really nothing else to talk about. You know, Paul, he nails every nail on the head. Kind of a redundant sentence, but you get my point. Mm-hmm. Um, he explains what he means, and he does it well. I think sometimes he does get a bit long-winded, and sometimes what he says can be confusing. But Romans is a good book to start out with because it's very basic. Yeah. You know, he's preaching, I say preaching, but he's really writing to people who probably aren't that far developed in their faith so that they can understand what salvation looks like fully lived out. And so that's that's Romans. Um, like I said earlier, there's a lot of uh, similarities between Romans and Galatians, and we'll get to Galatians at a later point. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, Paul... He is the, I would say, master theologian, but the only master theologian is God. Yeah. Because all theology and doctrine come from God. Um, but he's a good second. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot to learn from studying Paul and just studying his letters, uh, just because so much of the New Testament is written by Paul. Right. Uh, like, what is it, like 60%? Mm-hmm. Over half is written by Paul. And even then, uh, I wouldn't say that Paul solely comes up with everything on his own. No. Because we definitely see ties from James, Mm -hmm. ties from John, Peter. Um, You know, so, and he even says, you know, salvation and the working out of your faith is through unity. Mm -hmm. It is through brotherhood and it is through Christ. And he even says, like, the gospel he preaches is his Mm -hmm. because it's the one that Christ gave him. I mean, on that road to Damascus, uh, that's what he was given. He saw the resurrected Lord. So right there, then and there, he knew the gospel was true. Now, we don't have that privilege. So that's why we have to have stronger faith. Mm-hmm. We have to believe even though we can't see. And I think that's what makes our salvation a lot more special than Paul's does. Yeah, it does. But that's all for Romans And we thank you for joining us this week. Any last thoughts? Uh, No, not so much. Uh, We're going to be going back, obviously, to the five solas starting next week. I don't remember which one. I think it's sola scriptura is what we're going to be looking at. 
Uh, but other than that, I mean, obviously, if you're on Spotify, hit that notification bell. Should be right there, uh, right on the main page. You see a little bell that you can hit. Same thing on YouTube. You can subscribe, hit the bell. Uh, you'll be notified whenever a new episode comes out. Obviously, follow us on YouTube at the Upper Room Discourse. And uh, other than that, I think we're pretty good. We'll see you guys next time. See you next time. You have reached the end of the record. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to our YouTube and also find us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify.